Good morning. My name is Peter Kroll. I am one of the elders for our church. And my wife, Ann, and I have been homeschooling our children the last few years. But this year, we began a new adventure with our two boys at the public elementary school. And I was visiting their school one morning, just a month or two ago, and I was reminded of a daily practice, which I had done for many, many years as a child, but which we don't typically do at home, which was the Pledge of Allegiance that they were doing at school. And it's a funny thing, this Pledge of Allegiance. It's a promise to remain true and loyal to a flag. Why do it to a flag? Of course, you understand already the the deep things of society. You know, it's not about merely a piece of fabric. You know how it goes, if you grew up in this country at least. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands. Thank you. Thank you. You pass. You remember it. You see, this is actually a pledge to a nation, to a union of states with a single representative government, and the flag merely represents that republic. Our pledge to the flag is a promise to be loyal citizens, not undermining this country's lawful authority and preserving It's a a pledge to preserve the public welfare. Now, this sermon this morning is not about your civil responsibility to the United States of America, but it's about that whole idea of a flag representing a government. And it's about the promise of loyalty expected by that government. Our passage this morning is in Exodus 17. If you have a church Bible, it's on page 39. Well, it starts on 38. I'm going to start reading on 39, though. At the end of our passage, verses 15 and 16, we read this. Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, my flag, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. There is the climax of this morning's text. Moses builds an altar. In other words, he erects a monument to signify this purpose, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. He wants the people of Israel to remember that what happened here in this passage, that we'll read the rest of it in a little bit, what happened here took place because they kept their hand on God's throne. In other words, they remained loyal. They sought refuge in nothing but God and his good rule, his divine government over them as a nation, and they maintained dependence on him as their ruler. Therefore, he was their banner. The Lord is my banner. He was their flag. He himself is the thing they bear before themselves in this battle. He is all their hope, which they eagerly display and they are delighted 
to pledge their allegiance to him. And that gives them incredible power to resist evil and do good. Now, I should mention to you that that the, the Hebrew language that this was originally written in, the Hebrew of this verse, a hand on the throne of the Lord, it could be translated as a hand against the throne of the Lord. Just for the sake of fullness of of teaching you the word, I need to tell you this. Because Hebrew prepositions are really flexible. So it could read, and some translations translate it as, a hand against the throne of the Lord. But if that were the case, the point would be the same, but just stated negatively. It would be talking about the enemy nation that opposed the Lord and lifted up its hand against him. They did not have allegiance against him, and that the memorial is to remember what happens if your allegiance is elsewhere. So this morning, what about you? What is your banner? What is the flag that you wave to show what you are all about? What claims your highest and your most public loyalty? And where do you locate your basic identity? Some people wave the the flag of their job. If I ask them, who are you? They'll say, I am a teacher, or I am a student, or I am a contractor. Others wave the banner of their ethnicity. And if I ask, who are you? You might say, I'm Korean. I'm Russian. I'm black. I'm a feisty Irish woman. Others wave the banner of their family status. Who are you? I'm a husband or a wife. I'm a father of six children. I am unmarried, whatever that might be. These are all good things and they are important things. Our goal is not to wash away all ethnic differences or to minimize family or work responsibilities, but we also want to show you the path to true power. We want to raise up the banner that will empower you to resist evil and do good all the days of your life. I want to show you this morning the amazing, stricken, and ever-present Lord of all. So as we continue our study of Exodus this morning, let us consider what ought to be the Christian's pledge of allegiance. We'll see it has two parts. I pledge allegiance to the present stricken Lord first and second by whose royal power we can do good and resist evil. Let me pray, and then I'll read the first part. Father in heaven, thank you for this time that we have to be together, to love and honor one another, to learn from one another, and and encourage and build one another up. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for showing us that you are trustworthy. You are worthy of our allegiance. And help us to... to strengthen and and complete our allegiance in you this morning, uh, that we might wave this banner of the Lord. The Lord is our banner. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So first, we pledge allegiance to the present stricken Lord. Exodus 17, I'll read verses 1 through 7. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. 
And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of that place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? So this is now the third struggle in a row that we've read in Exodus dealing with sustenance. You may remember the end of chapter 15. They came to a place with bitter, undrinkable water. And then in chapter 16, they had no food. Now, once again, at the beginning of 17, there is no water. Now, the first time this happened with no water in chapter 15, they grumbled. Exodus 15:24. the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? And then the second time when there was no food, they wished for death. In Exodus 16:3, the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. And now this third time, look at what happens. In verse 2, they quarrel. In verse 3, they accuse Moses of trying to kill them. And then in verse 4, we find out that they are almost about to lynch Moses instead of being killed by him themselves. Their tempers are flaring higher and the stakes continue to increase. But we have to take note of the real issue, however, because the narrator summarizes it for us right at the end of this passage in verse 7. The narrator says, he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah. That means quarreling and testing. Because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? You see the main issue? The main issue is this question they have. Is the Lord among us or not? Perhaps you can relate to this. I have no water to drink. Is the Lord among us or not? I still don't have a job. Is the Lord among us or not? I never thought I'd be unmarried or divorced at my age. Is the Lord among us or not? My mother shouldn't have died that untimely death. Is the Lord among us or not? The holidays were so lonely and discouraging. Is the Lord among us or not? We should have more people filling up this room. Is the Lord among us or not? In times of pain, especially when we lack something we think we need, the biggest question for us really is whether we trust that the Lord is present with us or not. Some of you might even be sitting there 
right now stewing and thinking, here we go. Here's another religious person explaining away the pain and suffering in the world. If there were a God and if he were present here on earth, surely he wouldn't let people suffer so much. But here comes another preacher filling in that gap and explaining it all away, telling us to just suspend our disbelief and paint smiles on our faces. And I want you to know that, no, I don't intend to just wave my hand and act as though I can wipe away all the hard questions. I welcome your questions and I hope you ask them freely. And as you ask them, please just consider with me what sort of God this text wants us to deal with. Because this is not a God who just waves his hand to make all the pain go away. This is not a God also who simply orders people around and then turns on the faucet to give them water. No, take a close look with me at this God. Look at verse 5. The Lord said to Moses... Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Now get this. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. Please understand this. This God wants to be with his people. Now, they are not sure if he's among them or not, but he says, I will stand before you there on the rock. Don't miss the significance of this statement. God himself will be among them. You see, here's this rock. This rock of Horeb is more like a cliff. And God will stand on the rock there before the people. And then Moses will take his wonder-working staff that he used to, to do all these miracles that we've read about in Exodus, and he will strike that rock. But remember, who's standing on the rock? The Lord is standing there on the rock. So as Moses strikes the rock, you see what's happening? As Moses approaches the rock to whack it, In whacking the rock, Moses also whacks the creator God. So this God does not just watch his people suffering from afar. He doesn't instruct them in all they must do and then glare at them condescendingly when they dare to question him. He sees their lack. He sees their loss and he enters it. He enters their suffering. If they are to suffer, he will suffer along with them. And in suffering with them, in being struck, he shows just how near and present he is. This is why when the New Testament reflects on this event, on the water that came from the rock, 1 Corinthians 10 verse 4 says they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. You see, Jesus claimed to be God. He walked the earth doing good and healing people and then he died. He was struck 
He was whipped. He was beaten and hung on a tree. You remember what happened when they pricked his side with the spear? What came out of it? Blood and water. The rock was struck and the water flowed. Jesus was stricken, smitten, and afflicted. Jesus knows what it's like to be thirsty. You might remember, on the cross, he shouted out, I thirst! He knows what it's like to be lonely. He knows, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knows what it's like to be mistreated and overlooked. This is why he is called Emmanuel, which means God is with us. God is among us. How does this apply for us? Please trust God's presence. When you are lacking something you need and you don't get whatever you want and you feel your hunger, your thirst, your pain, your longing, remember that the one who was struck is with you always. Your pain is not proof of his absence. Your pain actually signals his presence because he knows what it's like and he cares about it. As Michael Card puts it in one of his songs, Though I cause you so much agony, you refuse to walk away from me. The first part of the Christian's Pledge of Allegiance is to this present stricken Lord, Jesus Christ. Let's move on and see the second part. The second part of the Pledge of Allegiance is that this Lord is the one by whose royal power we can do good and resist evil. Now we're in this, this kind of funny transitional middle section of Exodus, which runs from chapters 15 to 19. This is the part where God prepares to rebuild his house. He wants to rebuild his people, make them a nation where he can dwell among them. He's demolished the house of slavery. He spent a long time in the first part of the book talking about that. He rescued his people from bondage. But now in this middle transitional section, he's preparing them to be his dwelling place where he can reside for the ages. And so he must remind them with what we just saw, that he is with them and that he knows what it's like to suffer. But he does that with a purpose. He does this to help them do what is right. They must learn to fight evil and do good. Let's continue in our passage, starting in verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So they're at the same place, at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, 
that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Now you remember, if, you, if you've read the book, if you've been here, they've already had one showdown against a hostile army when Egypt chased them. But they didn't have to lift a finger. The Lord hurled the Egyptian army into the Red Sea. Now, however, it is time for the people of Israel to fight. Verse 9 is the Bible's first mention of Joshua, the guy who here leads the ground forces. Later, he's going to become Moses' successor while, uh, as the leader of the nation. While, while Moses goes up on the hill, Joshua's leading the fights. And it's interesting, Moses goes up on this hill. This is very possibly the slope of Mount Sinai, where he's going to receive the law in a few chapters. Because they were, when they got the water from the rock, which was next to Rephidim, Rephidim was where they had no water, and they went to the rock of Horeb. That was the rock that was struck in the previous paragraph. And Horeb and Sinai are the same mountain. So here when he goes up on the hill, it's, Probably still Horeb, that rock that was struck, that mountain he's going to go up and get the law, the mountain where he was back in chapter 3 when he saw God in the presence of, of a fire burning a bush that wasn't consumed. Moses goes up on that hill to get his hands on the throne of the Lord. And as long as Moses has his hands up, picturing his allegiance to the Lord, our trust, our dependence is on God's throne, on his power, his rulership. They win the battle. But when his hands fall, they lose the battle. And so ultimately, with the Lord as their banner, the sigil that they bear before them, they defeat their enemies. What is the point here of this passage? Simply, I think, to show us both the power and the fluctuation of our allegiance to the Lord. Trust this God. Keep your hold on His throne. Depend on Him every minute. And you will have incredible power to do good and to resist evil. But waver in your hope. Lose your grasp on Him. Trust in anything else. And everything starts going haywire. This is part of God's rebuilding project to teach us these things, to show the people in a clear way the power of their allegiance to him. And it's not because their trust or their allegiance has any inherent power in itself or that it comes from them, but it's because the Lord can channel his power through them when he is the object of their trust. If I take a working lamp and plug it into a wall socket, it has much power to light up a room. But as soon as I remove the plug, I lose the power. The plug doesn't have the power, but the plug is able to access the power. That's what we're talking about here. Your allegiance is like the plug that enables you to access the power of God. The New Testament applies these truths in many ways uh, one place where it does it, especially when we suffer, is in 1 Peter chapter 3. In 1 Peter 3, 13 to 17, 
It says, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. There's the plug in the outlet. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So we we remember the present stricken Lord. We profess our allegiance to him. We honor Christ as Lord, uh, as holy. We honor Christ the Lord as holy in our hearts. And And as we do that, we trust in his royal power to embolden us. And we'll be able to answer opponents. Resisting evil, they will be put to shame. And we will have zeal to do what is good. How does this apply? Get your hand on the throne of the Lord. And then you have the power to do good, to resist evil. When you trust that Christ, your King, is with you, you will have the power to put your enemies to shame. Those who revile you will be ashamed. We trust that the Lord will defeat our enemies primarily by converting them so that we're always ready to speak of this hope because we want them to share that hope. God came as Jesus. Jesus died. Jesus rose. Jesus went back to heaven. And now his spirit wakes us up so we can trust him. Our sins are forgiven and the world is changed. Is this message your hope? Is this God the object of your allegiance? We have to understand this order. First, Jesus was struck on the cross as our substitute. And then... He rose from the dead to give us power to do good and resist evil. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, you have no power, no real power, and you're still stuck in your sin. But praise God for the Savior who rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. So we learn from this passage what ought to be the Christian's Pledge of Allegiance. May it resound from our hearts day by day. I pledge allegiance to the present stricken Lord by whose royal power, even his resurrection power, we can do good and resist evil. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, our hope is not in ourselves. Our hope is you. Lord Jesus, you came to earth and you were stricken smitten by God and afflicted for our sins, that we might go free and we might receive an inheritance. And you rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. You are seated at God's right hand where you now rule until all enemies will be put under your feet. Help us to grasp your throne that we might channel your power to the world. Please give us the strength we need, O Lord to resist evil and do good all the days of our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.